There's a story that I read this week that was very interesting. It's about a young boy who worked on his family farm back in frontier days. And this young boy and his family, they did, he, he was the only son, the only child. There wasn't a daughter either. So the parents didn't have a whole lot of money, and so they weren't able to hire uh, farmhands. And not having any more kids, they didn't have a lot of people to help on the farm. They just had mom and dad and the young son. And so because farming is so, you know, labor-intensive, the young son back then, uh, he didn't have time to go to school. He didn't have time to do much of anything that anybody else would have done. He just worked the farm, got up early in the morning, worked the farm, went to bed at night, got up the next day, worked the farm. That's just what they did. Well, in the process of working the farm, the young boy was out in the field one day, and he noticed that his neighbors had some kids. And they were out working the farm during the week in the afternoon. And so he struck up this conversation and began to have a friendship with these neighbor kids. But as he would get up early in the morning and go out into the field and work, he noticed these neighbor kids were leaving and going to school, which he was not able to do. Uh, and not going to school, he didn't know any schooling. He didn't know uh, much of anything as the conversation would go as those kids came home in the afternoon. And so they began to, in the course of their friendship, teach this young boy the alphabet. And so he learned uh, the alphabet, but that's as far as he got because they didn't have a whole lot of time. They're both working the farm, just crossing paths, hanging out for a few minutes. They would teach him to the alphabet out there in the field. Well, working the field, he also noticed on Sunday morning that family, the whole family of the neighbor friends that he had made, would go off to church. He, well, at first, he didn't know where they were going. He just noticed on Sunday they would go somewhere, uh, but he knew there wasn't school on Sunday. And when they got back later on, they told him we were going to church, and he asked what church was. And they began to explain what church was, began to explain what, who God was, who Jesus was, and over the course, not just that afternoon, but several weeks, they began to explain the gospel and salvation to this young boy. He got saved out there in the fields, just in passing conversations here and there. And as the weeks would go by, uh, those neighbor kids tried to explain to him what it meant to be a Christian, to be saved. And they started talking to him about prayer. And he said, what's that? And they said, well, it's where you, you, know, you talk to God. You have a conversation with God, he goes, well, I don't know how to do that. Uh, how do you talk to God? Like, well, what does that even look like? And they said, well, in, in the Bible, there's, there's a bunch of prayers in there, you know, that, like in the Psalms. And uh, Jesus prayed some prayers. He, you know, he prayed, um, my father who art in heaven, hallowed be. And, he, and the little boy just is shocked because he's never heard this before. And he said, well, all I know is the alphabet. I don't know how to put the letters together to, make, to read. He said, so I don't know any of those prayers. And they said, well, we can work on that. As time goes on. Well, about that time, the, the neighbor kid's parents called them in for dinner, and they ran off through the field to get home for dinner, and this boy was just in the field there thinking as he's working for his family that day, and he all of a sudden had the thought, as they had been describing prayer, and neighbor kid's gone, his parents are in another part of the field, he just drops on his knees out there in the field, puts, folds his hands together, and he begins to pray. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. And he's beginning to do that over and over and over again. 
Well, time came for them to have dinner, and his father starts yelling, and he can't find his son out there in the field, and begin to get worried. And he goes out there to where his son finds him, his son out there in the, the extension of the field, and sees him with, on his knees, his hands clasped together, saying the alphabet to himself with his eyes closed and his head bowed. And he says, son, are you okay? And he said, yes, I'm okay. I was just praying. He said, well, why were you saying the alphabet? Praying. He said, well, I didn't know all these you know, fancy prayers in Scripture. All I knew was the alphabet. And I figured that God would just take the letters and put them together and give me what I needed. Father said, well, that's what prayer is. Trusting God to give us what we need. Turning to him with what we can and trusting him to give us what we need. Which is exactly what we're going to be looking at today. Acts chapter 12. You see, we've been going through a series about spiritual disciplines, and we're going to get back on some specifics of those next week. But as I was studying the next spiritual discipline, I really feel like the Lord was saying, we need to talk a little bit more about prayer. <laughs> Last week, we talked about prayer. We need to talk about it a little bit more today, kind of as an extension. So even though this week would be like spiritual disciplines part three, it's more like 2.5 uh, as we talk a little bit more about prayer today in Acts chapter 12. You see, what's going on here in Acts 12, uh, a very interesting scenario is happening. Um, Jesus, you know, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended to heaven. Uh, Holy Spirit came and gave the, the disciples at that point, it wasn't just the 12, there was 120 of them, believers, gave them the Holy Spirit and they began to tell people about Jesus. Thousands of people are getting saved. Well, some time has gone by as people are getting saved. And so look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 12. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, Herod the king, this is a different Herod than was around when Jesus was born. Right? There was a Herod when Jesus was born, and he sent the, the uh, wise men to find Jesus in Bethlehem. Well, that Herod was Herod the Great. He died. This guy is his grandson. This guy, this Herod... Uh, this guy was only king for about three years. But while Herod the, king was Herod the Great was dangerous because he was constantly paranoid someone was trying to usurp his throne, this Herod was dangerous because he just wanted to make everybody happy. He was worried that some of the powerful people would be unhappy with him. And so when he would do something that would make somebody happy, he would just keep doing that thing. And so when he does hear as he begins to lay, it says violent hands. That's intensive. That's aggressive. It actually comes from the same root word as the word for evil um, in what he's doing to the Christians. Look at what it says, verses 2 and 3. It says, He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So he uh, is violently persecuting Christians. And he grabs James, one of the 12. You know, Peter, James, and John, this is that James. Kills him with the sword. Now, whatever that means, there's two different ways that could be taken, either running him through or cutting his head off, either way. But he kills James at this point. First of the 12 to die like this. And he sees that the Jews are happy with that, so he grabs Peter. Peter, who's the leader of the crew. He grabs Peter, throwing him in jail, fully intending to kill Peter too. Probably the same way, probably in a very public spectacle because it made the Jews happy. 
The Jews who had significant political power, not just in this region, but just in this day at this point in time, that will lessen later on, but at this time they did, and so he arrests Peter, intending to kill him, but because it was a special Jewish festival, and if he did a public spectacle and killed Peter in a very public way, it would have made the Jews mad, and he wants to keep the Jews happy, so he locks Peter up, fully intending to kill him as soon as this festival's over, in a very public, probably gruesome and just despicable way. So he's holding him there in prison for several days. Peter is there anticipating this potential death. Verse 4. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So he has Peter there in prison Four squads of soldiers. Now, the way they would do this is it was four squads of four soldiers. There's 16 guys. And they would have two with Peter in the prison cell chained to him. They would have one just outside uh, the prison cell. And then they would have one at another gate that he had to get to before he could get out of the prison. So he would have to get past all these four guys to do this. And why this is significant is back in Acts 5, Peter was in prison. And he walked right out. All the doors opened of their own accord. No problem. And so Herod knows Peter's already escaped. I need to make doubly sure he doesn't get out this time. So he puts a rotation. They would rotate every three hours so everybody would be fresh. They would have two guys chained to him, one guy outside the door, one guy outside the next door. And every three hours they would rotate so that everybody was on guard and alert and ready. Nobody's falling asleep during this process. And so Peter is a very high-value target that he's got all of this this protection because, because uh, Herod knows Peter has gotten out before. Verse 5. Oh, I want to point out one word here. There in verse 4. So this was Herod's intention. He was intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. You see, man's intention is nothing compared to God's intention. People can have all kinds of intentions about you. And what they want to do with you and to you. But that doesn't matter when it comes to God's intention. Herod, evil, wicked, terrible Herod, who just killed James, one of Peter's best friends, who walked with Peter through fire as they saw Jesus doing what Jesus was doing. Jesus crucified. They saw Jesus raised together. James killed. Peter's in prison, anticipating the next day dying. And that was man's intention, but God had a different intention. So verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer, intense, fervent, eager prayer was made for him. But this is actually the exact same word that is used when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested. And it said he was praying with great earnestness and his disciples were a little bit a ways off from him and says he was sweating drops like blood. This is the same kind of prayer that Jesus was praying in the garden that the Christians are praying for Peter while he's in prison. This earnest, this intense prayer. But I want to point something out to you in this verse. It doesn't say specifically what they were praying for Peter. It just says they were praying. Now the assumption is they're praying that Peter gets out of prison. That's the assumption. And most likely that's what they're praying. But it doesn't say what they're praying. 
And it also doesn't mean they didn't pray for James when he was arrested. Undoubtedly, they did. But James was killed, and now Peter's in prison, and they are fearful of what's going to happen to Peter. And so they redouble their efforts in prayer, this great earnest prayer they're making for Peter, knowing there's going to be a spectacle when the feast is over. And so they're praying in some capacity for Peter. Look at verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on the very night... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So we get the picture of the situation. Peter's sleeping. Now, if it's the night before you're going to be beheaded in a public way that is, you know, probably the most embarrassing way you could possibly, that's just who Herod was, would you be at peace enough to sleep? Peter's asleep between the two guards. So the, the image is Peter's just, they would sit in prison. There weren't chairs. They would just sit on the ground. And he's in gra- on, sitting on the ground chained to these guys. I picture Peter with his head on one of the guards' shoulders like this, just, just asleep, just totally at peace with the way the world is as he's there awaiting. The next day he's going to die. They've told him, you're dying tomorrow. You're, you better enjoy your neck right now because you won't have it tomorrow. And Peter's just asleep. Look at verse, well, you know what, actually, I was going to do this in a minute, but the overwhelming odds that Peter is facing, right? The situation, I mean, if you've read this, you know what's coming, but the situation itself seems hopeless. Where he got out before, but he wasn't chained up like he is now. Now he's chained up, he's chained two guys to two guys. Guy outside the door, guy outside the next door. There's no way out. These are overwhelming odds. But to God, overwhelming odds are merely opportunities. We may not see how God's going to do it. We may not understand what's going to come. But with God's power, it's an opportunity. Opportunity to do something phenomenal or opportunity to grow us in a way we didn't anticipate. We just have to trust him. Trust that he will provide what we need. Katie gave me this poem last night from a phenomenal uh, book by, um, uh, her name's leaving me, Katie. What's her name? Elizabeth Elliot, wife of Jim Elliot, the missionary in South America who was killed with the people he was trying to bring to Jesus. But she had this poem that she quoted from a guy named Grant Tuller. Uh, It's called The Weaver. It really paints this picture perfectly of this trust that we need to have in God in overwhelming situations. It says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors that he, we- that he weaves steadily. Oftentimes he weaves sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly. Will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why? The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. The image in that is God knows what he's doing better than we do. And we have to trust him. Trust that he's doing what he's doing. Trust that we can't see the full picture. Trust that he knows. And there's Peter in prison, not knowing 
fully what's coming. He's anticipating death, but he doesn't know what's coming because he can't see what God can see. He can just see his side, as it says in that poem, the underside, while God can see the upper side and can see the whole tapestry that we can't. And he knows how it's going to come together. And Peter's there in prison, ready to be beheaded, while the rest of the Christians are locked in a room in earnest prayer. And look at what happens next. Verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Now, as we get into this, you're going to see this is one, I think, the most humorous sections in all of Scripture. This angel shows up in the prison. Peter's chained to two guards. They're all sitting on the ground. It says, what does it say? A bright light shines in the prison. My image, again, this may not be the way it is. I'm probably reading into the text, but the angel shows up. Angel! Everybody's asleep. Nobody sees the bright light. Nobody sees the sudden appearance. Nobody sees the overwhelmingness of the moment. You know, other times when angels show up, they say, fear not. There was nobody afraid because everybody was sleeping. And so what does it say happened? It says he struck Peter. And the word used for struck is violently hit. And so if the angel appears in the prison cell, Peter's sitting on the ground, shows up, light shines, nobody sees. Gah! Wakes him up, it says. Violently hits him and wakes him up. And then Peter wakes up. Oh, oh, I see what's going on. Okay, angel. Okay, here I am. And look what the angel does. He says, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now, Peter's completely passive in this moment. Probably still a little groggy. Probably still a little sore. He got kicked or hit or whatever happened here. And so he had to be directed by the angel of everything he needed to do, kind of like a parent and their child. All right, get up, put on your shoes, put on your shirt, tie your shoes, tie your, find your, where'd your other shoe go? We got to get out now. And so the angel's walking Peter. It's like, it's a step-by-step miracle prep. He's preparing Peter for what's about to happen, but he's got to walk him through the preparations to get there. Don't we need that very often? We need Jesus to walk us through the process to get ready because we can't get ourselves ready. Because sometimes when Jesus is about to do something, God's about to do something amazing, we're like Peter and we're asleep at the spiritual wheel, (laughs) completely unaware of, of what God's about to do, of what God is prepared to do. We need some kind of spiritual kick in the side to wake us up. And so Peter wakes up. He's doing everything the angel says to get ready. Now, in getting him ready, whereas before, you know, God got Peter out of prison the last time, it was still kind of thought of in a way that God got him out. But this time, this is not an escape here. Because Peter's having to be directed through everything, guided by the angel, this is a rescue. Peter's not doing anything in his own active mind. He was resigned to the fact he was going to die. And now the angel's getting him out. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Verse 9. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So even in, see, in all the supernatural things Peter saw, all of them, 
Lazarus raised from the dead, Jesus walking on, wa- walking on water himself, you know, the, the, the food multiplying, feeding the 5,000. His gut reaction now in prison, facing overwhelming odds alone in the prison cell, his thought is, well, this isn't real. I'm not getting out of prison. This must be a vision. God's trying to show me something. That maybe he's escorting me into heaven. That's what this is. And I'm just, so he doesn't even think it's real. And you see, even the godly can live in doubting denial. Even the godly may not realize God is doing something incredible in the moment and doubt and den- be in self-denial about what's going on. You see, the thing about godly people is they're still sinners. Have you ever put somebody up on a pedestal and then they stumble and fall? Maybe not even something major, maybe just several minor things. And you're like, thought they were godly. I mean, my word. What? What is wrong with them? Well, they're people. People are sinners. People are messed up. Everybody except Jesus. And so anytime we revere somebody or look towards somebody, we have to do it from the understanding of they're a sinner. And they're going to screw up. Just accept it and move on. Give them grace. Give them forgiveness. Give them mercy because you got it. And keep moving in the way God's got you to move. And so Peter is in self-denial. He's doubting that God's getting him out of prison. He thinks it's just a vision. So look at verse 10. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish and all that the Jewish people were expecting. So the angel gets him out of prison. Gate opens all by itself. They walk down the road. It says that they walk down the road and turn a corner. And then the angel disappears. And only at that point does Peter say, Oh, maybe this is real. This isn't just a dream. Maybe God really is getting me out of this situation. And I like, too, that the angel didn't immediately leave Peter once they got out of prison. He walked him down the street and around the corner first so that Peter had his moment of aha once they were down the street in like an alley. And he wasn't right outside the prison going, oh, I'm out of jail. But he waited till he was down the way so he could have his little reaction moment and uh, be away from the ears that were there in the prison. So Peter hears this, and he says out loud, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel, rescued me from the hands of Herod, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting one thing. Peter was expecting the same thing. But oftentimes in God's work, expectation and realization are miles apart. We can expect one thing, and God brings about something completely different. Sometimes expectation can kill what God is going to bring to fruition. Sometimes we'll miss completely what God has because we were expecting this thing over here. But this thing over here wasn't even half of what God wanted to do. But sometimes we get so focused on the expectation, we miss the realization of God's purpose. And so instead of expectation, we need to just trust what God's going to bring. Trust him. I had a guy uh, a few years ago, um, phenomenally wise man. He said it this way. Uh, He said, expectation is premeditated disappointment. Expectation is premeditated disappointment. Because nobody can live up 
ultimately, especially ourselves. We can expect certain things of ourselves and never actually hit that. And so we think of ourselves in a certain light or a certain capacity. God says, don't trust that. Trust me. Trust me. All these Jews, all this stuff Herod had, even Peter himself were expecting one thing, but God's realization of the moment was something far more amazing. Look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, this is John Mark. John Mark was, uh, later on, he becomes a, a friend of Paul, and they go on missionary journeys. He's a cousin of Barnabas, um, things of that nature. But uh, we believe that this place where they're at, John Mark's house, his mother's house, uh, was the upper room. Um, it's what we believe, that this is where they were when Jesus had the Last Supper. This is where they were when the Holy Spirit came. Um, this is like their home base for the moment until persecution gets super intense. And so they're back there in that upper room, locked in, praying fervently. And so that's where he goes. He goes to their headquarters, their base of operations, John Mark's mom's house, uh, verse 13. Now picture it too, right? He's out of prison. It's the middle of the night. Are you going to be running along the street making a lot of racket? He's probably tiptoeing, making as little sound as he possibly can. And he finally gets over there. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So Peter's out there in the street, prison escapee, quietly as best he can, knocking on that door. Rhoda comes to the door. Peter says, let me in. Let me, I'm out of prison. Let me in. She goes, oh, and then runs away, leaving Peter at the door still going, let me in, please, 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 please. And she runs in to tell everybody, Peter's at the door. And so he's out there in the street while she's running in to tell everybody. Verse 15, and they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, this was a first century, it's not like Peter died and became an angel. This was a first century superstition uh, that everybody had guardian angels, and then when you died, your angel hung around a little bit afterwards to tell people a certain message or something like that. It was a, it's not scriptural, it's not biblical, first century superstition. And so they're saying, okay, well, Peter must have died, and they've already killed Peter in prison. His angel came, and he was going to give us a message about Peter. You know, it's not really Peter in the street. There's no way Peter's in the street, even though... What are they probably praying about in the room? For Peter's release. Now they get word that Peter's released. And like, you're crazy. You're at, it was easier to believe that Peter was dead and there was a ghost angel in the street than Peter was actually there for them. Now, think about it too. If this is really an angel, does the angel need to be knocking at the door? I mean, they're not thinking like that. But they just did not believe the very thing they were praying for. And so we get back uh, to Peter out there. And they're doubting he's out there in the street. It says, but Peter continued to knock. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. <laughs> it really is. Peter's really here. He's still out there in the street. He's still knocking. Finally, they open the door. Now, it doesn't say, too, how long the conversation was between all the people in Rhoda. I mean, it could have been quick. It could have been a while 
And all the while, Peter's out there in the street. Maybe he's finding little rocks, trying to throw them at the window kind of a situation. But he's out there in the street by himself, afraid any moment a Roman guard, centurion, or whoever is going to come around the corner. And uh, they finally open the door, and there's Peter, having doubted all this time. But that's also something that we need to take and, and, and observe their reaction and respond accordingly because we never need to doubt what God is doing simply because we don't understand it. Never doubt what God's doing because we don't understand it. Maybe God's doing something in somebody else that we don't see because we just don't understand how God's doing that thing. Never doubt what God is doing just because we don't understand it. They open the door. Peter comes in. Uh, verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. Now this James, this isn't the James who was killed. This is James, the brother of Jesus, this James. Because James, the brother of Jesus, became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And so James isn't in the room. He says, okay, this is what happened. God got me out. God rescued me. Angel kicked me, woke me up, led me out, got me here. Now, when James shows up tomorrow, you tell James everything. I got to get out of town. And so he, he, he tells them to let James know. But the important thing that Peter does in his description, and besides telling him, you guys got to stop celebrating and be quiet, there's guards outside, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. The Lord did it. The Lord did it. We've got to give credit where credit is due. Paul writes about that in Romans uh, chapter 13. Give honor where honor is due. Give everything where it should be. If God did it, give God the credit for it. Don't take credit for it yourself. Give God the credit for it. And so he says, the Lord did it. The Lord got me out. And never be afraid to give the Lord the credit. Always give the Lord the credit. Because what happens next, if you jump down to verse, let's see, 22, Herod gets up and gives a speech to the people. Remember evil King Herod? This is what happened. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So in verse 17, Peter gives God the credit. Verse 22, Herod did not. Peter was rescued. Herod was immediately struck dead. I'm not saying God's going to strike you down if you don't give him the credit. He might, but I'm not saying he will. But it's, a, it's an example to us that we should always give God the credit. Give God the credit. Show God or show the people, anybody around it, God did that. I did not do that at all. That was all God. That was all God. And if anybody is... Uh, uh, begging you for credit themselves. That should be a red flag, too. We should give credit. If somebody helps, you should give them credit. If somebody does something for you, you should give them the, the honor that is due that credit. But if anybody's saying, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me, instead of, hey, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, when you say, hold up a sec. But far, often, far more often than should be the case, we do that ourselves. I know I do. Far too often, we, whether in how we do something, in what we do, in how we say something, we're saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. 
when we ought to be saying, look at Jesus. We ought to be redirecting our attention. Like John the Baptist did. When Jesus walked by, he told his own disciples, stop following me. There's the Son of God. Follow him. Less of me, more of him. Follow him, not me. Follow him. Just be a signpost to lead people to Jesus. Point people to Jesus. You see, if you're driving somewhere, you don't remember the signpost. You remember the destination. Signposts just get you to the destination. Just be a signpost pointing people to Jesus. That's what we need to be everywhere, anywhere, always. Pointing people to Jesus. That's what Peter did. He said, God did it. And then he departed and went to another place. All of it stemming from their prayers. Because notice Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, guided by the Lord, always did things on purpose because God always did things on purpose. The prayer came and then the rescue came. And the rescue came at the last moment, yes, but the rescue came. But the prayer happened first. Even though you say, yeah, they prayed, but they didn't even, you know, really believe what they were praying because when the answer to the prayer came, they said, no, it cannot be Peter. Now, yeah, I understand we were just two seconds ago praying that Peter would get out of prison, and there's Peter. I don't believe it. Like, that's too amazing a thing that Peter would, that the, God would answer our prayer like that. But... There's a guy named Warren Wearsby, very wise man. He said it like this. He said, it's always right to pray. Even if your faith is so weak, you are surprised when the answer comes. It's always right to pray. Even if your faith is so weak, you're surprised when the answer comes. It's always right to pray. Because what are you doing when you're praying? You're going to God. You're, going to, you're doing the right thing. You're going to the right place. Like the little boy in the field just praying the ABCs. He didn't know the words to string together, but what he could brought to the Lord was a trust, was a faith. And that's what we need. A trust in that God knows what he's doing. A trust that God will take care of us. It's always right to pray. Even when we're surprised by God's answer. It's always right to pray because prayer can change even the most dire of situations. The situation may seem impossible, may seem like it's never going to, to, to be answered. We're, we're never going to get out of this hopelessness. But prayer can change the most dire of situations because God is there. However God brings the, the answer whether it's exactly like what we're praying for or it's how God wants it to be done and we need to grow into what he does for us, it can change either the situation or it can change us in the situation. Prayer can change even the most dire of situations, like bringing somebody back to life this week in Queen. Prayer can change everything. And so I'm going to ask you, a couple of questions. First, are you like Peter right now, where you are in your life? Do you need Jesus to rescue you wherever you find you? Maybe, maybe the situation, the dire situation you're in is you need rescue from eternity. And you need salvation. Do you need to believe in Jesus today? That he died and rose from the dead to forgive you of your sins and to grant you eternal life? Do you need him to rescue you eternally today? 
And if that's the case, here in just a sec, we're going to uh, sing another song, and I'll be standing right over there. Jared will be right there in the back. If you need to talk to somebody, come and talk to us. We'll pray with you, celebrate with you. You can talk to us once the service is over. We even got a little form on our website. You can go to our website and say, I don't know, it's kind of weird walking to somebody I don't really know, and all these people walking by in this weird hot room. You can go on our website. There's a place for decisions, and it sends an email immediately to my email, and I'll call you today if you need to make a decision for the Lord. Or maybe your situation right now is that you need prayer, just like Peter did. You're in a situation that you need intervention for. So what we're going to do right now is I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you if you need prayer to raise your hand. We're not going to have a share time where you say what you need prayer for. Just if you need prayer in some capacity, in some part of your life, raise your hand. Just raise your hand and I'll pray for you. Good. Great. Let's pray. God, there's some of us here, both who were bold enough to raise hands and some who were raising hands internally, who are in dire situations, need help, need rescue need your direct intervention. God, I pray that you would come in the same way you came to Peter in that prison cell as we pray earnestly right now, intensely right now, fervently, that you would intervene. You would intervene in your will. You would intervene with your hand and you would bring rescue. Rescue that cannot be seen right now. Because maybe we're sleeping spiritually. But that you would wake us up, get us prepared for the miracle, and we would walk with you right out of the prison we're trapped in. God, every single one of those people. You would bring us where you want us to be. God, give us the strength and the willingness to follow you out of that prison being rescued by you. God, I thank you for your provision and strength. I thank you that even in the midst of turmoil and storms and prison, even when we're alone, we're not alone because you're there with us, ready. Ready for the rescue. In your name I pray.